0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Since we last recorded a broadcast one week ago, Radio Parallax embarked upon a few curious adventures. I guess that's how you might summarize A, attending events in Niles, California, a district of Fremont, celebrating the fact that Charlie Chaplin made movies there a little over 100 years ago, the SNA Silent Film Museum sponsored events in in accordance with that, which we need to tell you about a bit. Yours truly also chanced to go out upon Monterey Bay last week on a whale-watching expedition, which turned out well, which we also need to tell you about. And Mr. McMillan and I packed up the car and traveled up to Chico, California. And yes, my apologies to the good people at KZFR. We did come by the studio, but due to time constraints, we got there rather late in the day and everybody was gone. And perhaps for this show, or at least the first segment of this program, you might consider it to be the confluence of three different Venn diagram circles. We should start with the field trip to Chico, I think, to note that this was done in order to sit down with a relative of mine, my great-uncle, I guess you might say, to talk about his life as a young man and to show a video that Mr. Merlin and I put together in the Hawaiian Islands uh, last year, talking to his sisters about, well, I, I guess my great grandpa that came to the Hawaiian Islands from the island of Madeira in the 1880s. This is an interesting little project we've gotten involved with, and it's probably not going to impinge much on this radio program due to, I don't know, privacy issues. That said, some of what we stumbled upon is so damn funny and interesting that we're going to tell you about it anyway. We do note that we're probably going to take a break here on Radio Parallax for the summer months, and some of our energies will be devoted into that particular project, and kind of hitting a reset button, I think, to come back and take some new looks at issues we're constantly kicking around and see if we can find some new solutions. We're feeling a bit hemmed in, particularly by the political situation here in the United States, wherein the gravest problems that seem to be Facing the world are being studiously ignored by people who would just prefer that those problems didn't exist. I do want to note that the plan originally had been for Radio Parallax to be operating from, well, overseas. Yours truly meant to travel down to South America for the eclipse that took place this past week, but that did not come off. Luckily, if one is determined to see an eclipse in Argentina, There'll be an opportunity to do so again in December of 2020. And we do suggest, your listener, that you consider marking your calendar for that event. I guess the observing was pretty good down there in Chile and Argentina. And frankly, I'm a bit sorry that I missed it. But, oh well, one cannot do everything in life that one wants to do, eh? We'd also like to make a big deal later this month about... Well, the fact that it's the 50th anniversary of man walking on the moon. We have devoted, I think, more than one show to looking at the Apollo project and various other things that NASA has been up to. And during our temporary hiatus, I hope that um, the good people at KDVS and perhaps KZFR might consider airing some of our previous broadcasts on that very topic. Author Jay Barbie wrote a wonderful book about uh, Neil Armstrong and uh, Neil's efforts in Apollo 11. He, of course, is the first man to plant a foot onto the lunar surface. We'll see how that goes. This show is being broadcast this year on the 4th of July, America's traditional birthday celebration day. In the years past, we've taken a look at some of the great myths that surround America's birthday and our our founding. We're not going to do that today, but... One thing I do want to sound off about is the fact that, well, depending on where you go, fireworks are either completely illegal or completely legal. And in either location, there are illegal fireworks that nobody wants to see, like, you know, firecrackers. And of course, out near sunset on the 4th of July, we'll note that the authorities have done one heck of a good job of keeping firecrackers out of this country. I don't think you'll be able to hear more than, say, 100 a minute going off during certain phases of the evening. I did have to laugh at the Sacramento Bee's article titled, Illegal Firework Task Force Returns Ads Members. Good, good. Keep it up, boys. You're doing a great job. Now, I don't want to downplay the fact that, you know, that you can get into trouble with misuse of, say, a Roman candle. Then again, I remember my very first... Experience with fireworks as a small boy when I discovered that those sparklers that cool off after you burn them, well, they, they take a while to cool off, which you may not be aware of. Those are safe and sane and can still get you into quite a bit of trouble. Let's go back to Charlie Chaplin. The good people at the A Museum did a wonderful job in a walking tour of Nile showing where people lived. And no, it's still unclear where Charlie took up residence. It is believed by some that his new first lady, Edna Proviance, who was with him for the next six years, joined him when he came to the SNA Studios. It is an interesting story that he was working for Max Sennett in 1914, where he cranked out something like 30 movies. If you don't like Charlie Chaplin, these are probably the movies you've seen. They are pretty crude, they are pretty rudimentary, and they all they do involve a lot of falling into ponds and kicking people in the rear and spitting on them, etc. But he got better real quickly. It was at the time in SNA which he developed this character that was a little more nuanced and, and had an ability to sort of make you wistful, make you cry, perhaps, in addition to making you laugh, and that, of course, became his great trademark, as he developed, you know, probably the greatest comedy character ever. I was a little bit stunned to realize that he went from being a guy starting out in the movies in 1914 to becoming one of the most famous people on the planet by the time he was at SNA cranking out more movies. Certainly by 1920, there seems to be no doubt among historians and film historians that He was probably the most recognizable figure on planet Earth. If you're a gifted pantomime artist, of course, um, you you don't need words to get your message across. I mean, what Charlie was up to was apparent to people in India and China and all over the world who spoke no English. It's all an interesting story, really. Charlie was uh, a man in a comedy troupe, a British comedy troupe touring America, along with uh, future comedic legend, Stan Jefferson, better known as Stan Laurel, when uh, he was spotted by someone working for Max Sennett, hired on to make these pictures, succeeded admirably, leading Bronco Billy Anderson, the cowboy movie star who was creating films for the S&A company, to hire him away from Max Sennett for the then unheard of price of a $10,000 signing bonus and a salary of $1,250 a week. Of course, something like a year and a half later, he would be hired away by Mutual with a signing bonus of $150,000 and a salary of $10,000 a week. In 1918, that was a lot of money. Even 10 years later, Babe Ruth, legendarily making something, I think, like $80,000 a year playing for the New York Yankees. <laughs> we have to do the other side. It was pointed out to him that... Uh, He actually made more money than President Hoover, to which Babe Ruth replied, well, I had a better year. We would refer you back to our discussion with uh, film historian David Keene in our archives about Bronco Billy Anderson, which David has written a book about and is quite expert on. Uh, His tour of Niles showed us where Chaplin's cameraman had lived, where Ben Turpin, another legendary uh, silent film star, had lived. And what really struck me was that they could show you where the old studio had been, where the fence had been that Charlie runs along, and where antics, you know, people are familiar with from the films, took place. You point over and say, well, he filmed that shot like 30 feet away right over there. They do this every year. If you missed it this year, and I'm sure that all of you (laughs) listening uh, did, you may want to, you know, pencil that on your calendar to check out in uh, probably in June of 2020. One thing they throw in is a train ride from the town of Niles, the little hamlet of Sonol, the other side of Niles Canyon. Mr Merlin and I have so far failed to get to uh, Bosco's uh, Brew, whatever it's called there, that, to talk about uh, the honorary mayor of Sonol, which was a dog back in the 1980s, but we, we will get there. One thing that struck me as really sort of cool and sort of interesting and and sort of a a brush with greatness, you might say, was the fact that David Keene has figured out, using some production stills versus the actual footage that they use in the film, where it was that Charlie films one of his comedy scenes in The Tramp, wherein, wherein he is directed to irrigate an orchard, and he goes out with a watering can. I was sort of amazed to realize that this orchard was about a half mile from... My family's orchard, just south of that location. And it does kill me that although my grandparents were living less than a mile from all of these uh, studio antics and Charlie Chaplin uh, produced films, etc., there's there's no family lore about any of this. I don't know why that is. I sort of think that the farming folk uh, wanted nothing to do with the movie folk. They were considered to be people of, well questionable character. And speaking of questionable character, I cannot help myself at making a slight digression into the fact that we're recording today on America's birthday, the 4th of July, a country founded by some talented and bright people. There's no disputing that. And yet at this moment in time, due to the fact that the system set up back in the 1780s, had a few loopholes, shall we say, in how it would work, how we would reach out to the populace to select one individual to be our leader, leading to the fact that at the present time, there is a chief executive in the United States of America who's now been accused for the second time of rape. Note of The Economist magazine, E. Jean Carroll is the 16th woman to credibly accuse the president of some kind of sexual molestation and the second to accuse him of rape. The magazine notes that Whether Americans approve of him or not, only 35 percent of us say the president is a person they admire. That's according to Gallup. And it should be noted that his defense in these accusations from E. Jean Carroll is, quote, she's not my type, unquote. With the implication, notes the economist, that had she been more attractive, he might have done it. This is the guy in the Hollywood Access tape that says he moves on women like a bitch, right? He just kisses them, he just grabs them. Grabs them in the you-know-what. And of course, he's used that same line, she's not my type, to counter the accusations uh, made by others. Anyway, that's enough of that. And I apologize, I just couldn't help myself. We're trying to keep things a little more light today. Discussing the grim nature of politics and our politicians is something we're going to try and move away from, I think, in the months to come. So let's instead talk about whale watching. Here's Julie embarked out of Monterey last Sunday with, um, well, a family member who runs a darn good company, Cheeseman's Adventure Safaris. Um, It's a pretty good outfit. I've gone out whale watching with them before. And no, this is not plug-ole. I I have nothing by referring to the actual company, which, you know, I approve of. They did a nice job. In fact, on board that day was a a person who runs another whale-watching company who, on her day off, decided to go out and whale-watch with us. She uh, certainly knew her business. She was able to recognize some of the whales on site. As they dove, she'd go, oh, that's Fran. And Fran likes to pair up with a whale we call Wynn because of the scrapes on her tail, happened to, they resembled WINN. She noted that some years back, these two had paired up for like a month and fed together out in Monterey Bay and had now apparently reunited, much to her delight. The humpback whales, by the way, are, uh, are the ones that uh, make these, at least the males, make these uh, incredible sounds that people recorded, <laughs> as I recall, I don't know, a couple of decades ago. there There were some albums that were put out about humpback whale mating sounds. There seemed to be some idea that if you played these whale mating noises that, you know, would, it, would, it would get women more in the mood. As far as I can see, this only works on women who are humpback whales. But uh, they went out of their way to show us uh, three different types of, of dolphins and, and explain how they ate uh, different diets. One of them specialized in um, squid and therefore had different dentition than the ones that uh, ate fish and had these conical, uh, conical teeth. If I'm remembering this correctly, the, the squid eaters were uh, were called right whale dolphins, uh, named after the right whale, which is noted for the fact that it does not have a dorsal fluke, neither do these dolphins, and they look like little torpedoes jumping in and out of the waves. Quite striking, you know, rather fish-like in, in their contours. They talked a bit about whale evolution and pointed out that uh, although a lot of creationists like to claim that there's all these missing links, in fact, at this point in time, we have got the evolution of whales mapped out in uh, surprising detail. The closest living re- relatives to whales are hippopotami. And since we brought up hippopotamuses or hippopotami, I'm not sure which is correct, I can't resist recycling that joke we used a couple weeks ago when someone sent a meme out showing that, you know, a picture of a Hippopotamus hitting the water at great speed noted that a hippopotamus can outswim a man and it can outrun a man on land. Meaning, the man in charge of this expedition, uh, Doug Cheeseman, it turns out is a relative of mine. I, I did not know him until uh, several years ago when I, well, I stumbled upon some mutual relatives. In the Hawaiian Islands, and they pointed out that this was a guy I should I should probably meet. And those relatives were right. I'm glad I have met Doug. He was a former instructor of zoology at De Anza College. Knows his business. It was business when it comes to uh, animals. And as a special bonus for me, he had some stories involving family members and uh, animal life, which I enjoyed. According to Doug, it was a family member who saved the island of Kauai from the misfortune of having mongooses, I believe that is the correct plural, uh, loosed on the island. Every other Hawaiian island has a problem with the mongoose, which was let loose supposedly to eat cane rats and other pests, despite the fact that uh, the mongoose apparently hunts during the daytime and the rats come out at nighttime, leading the mongooses to decide, well, we might as well eat chickens instead. Of course, having seen the chicken problem on the island of Kauai, apparently during the the visit by Hurricane Iniki back in 1993, the chicken farms were all torn apart, and the island is in essence one giant chicken farm at this point, maybe they could use a few mongooses. But they don't have mongooses there, because, according to Doug, when they brought over several of them, certain relatives decided this was a bad idea, with with foresight, because it was a bad idea in the other islands, and... Uh, They allegedly broke in to um, the facility where they were housed and drowned all six specimens. The local papers reported that the work had been done by vandals, but there's more to it than that. Now, luckily for posterity, uh, whoever in my family did this crime, I'm I'm sure the statute of limitations has passed. But uh, in Chico, I asked my great uncle if, if he knew who was behind this, and he professed ignorance. But, speaking of humpback whales, which is a a rarely used segue on this program, the current issue of The Economist has a piece in the science and technology section on humpback whales and, it turns out, elephants. Because, so I'll just have concluded that the humpback whale and, and the elephant rarely suffer from cancers. They apparently have something in their genetic makeup, which may or may not be related to their large size, which gives them added protection against cancers. According to The Economist, there's a suggestion that the evolution of gigantism in cetaceans is associated with strong selective pressure in favor of genes that conquer cancer. Pretty interesting avenue of study to study the, uh, the genetic makeup of whales and elephants to see what, uh, what advantages they have over us. The report was, that in the case of elephants at least, they have only a 5% mortality rate related to cancers, whereas we Homo sapiens uh, are more in the range of 11 to 25%. Now, the whaling industry certainly uh, had a major impact on the Hawaiian Islands. Uh, I'm grateful for the fact that uh, my people got there after the heyday of the whalers. But these islands were, of course, um, a remarkable location, you know, a, a truly colorful place here on planet Earth. And they're really about as close to paradise, I think, as you might find anywhere. It's, it's a sad story how the United States grabbed the Hawaiian Islands, but I guess if somebody had to grab it, better us than, you know, the Russians. My folks got there when it was still a, a, um, a monarchy. And I really appreciate, uh, in, in talking to relatives about um, what, what they know of the history over there, that, well, uh, surprising things emerge. According to my cousin, the Portuguese were brought over to serve as lunas. They already had knowledge of how to work cane fields in Madeira, and I think also the Azores. They also had some familiarity with growing pineapple. So they were thought to be perfect to come over to the Hawaiian Islands and supervise the Asians, the Filipinos, the Chinese, the Japanese, already being employed. They themselves were being employed by the New Englanders, the... uh, (laughs) the missionaries, they came over to do good and did well. But I was surprised to learn that um, after being there a while, a lot of them packed up and left because their overseers thought of them as, well, because of their dark skin color, blacks. And this sense, they were linked together with black folks. I presume this took place in the 1910s and 1920s. I don't know. Did you do know that my cousin was born in the 1920s, and I asked him some stories about the, the, the days of his youth. And boy, did he have a couple. He and his son were able to fill in some details about a rather remarkable relative, in this case a relative by marriage to yours truly, who apparently cut quite a figure over in the island of Kauai. His name was Louis Smokey Consolves. Now, Mr. Miller and I went over there to record some stories of, of my aunties years ago and got some rather rather colorful ones surrounding this individual. He apparently was quite a swimmer. He, I was told before that he had, uh, he had swum with Buster Crab, who was himself an Olympic swimmer and later a, a movie star. Louie uh, came to the islands, became a cop, became a lifeguard, became a city councilman, became a county supervisor, and, you know, got around, shall we say. I guess you could say he was, he was rather amorous, in spite of being married to a distant cousin of mine. My great-uncle told a story that I, I just have to share. Uh, they, they knew the kind of things he was up to, had, you know, I guess women on the side, and at one point, <laughs> seeing him drive up a country road, my uncle decided to follow him just for the hell of it. So they got in the car, drove up behind him, waited for him to park in a secluded spot, and according to their reports, they believe he had a, you know, a woman in the car with him who was hiding under a blanket. They pulled up, put him in the headlights of the car and said, uh, said, Louie, what are you up to? His answer, which I love, was that he was looking for some stray cattle. He then apparently pulled out a flashlight and pointed it out into the canyon to, uh, to, <laughs> to do this elaborate pantomime of cattle searching. He also mentioned he was, might be looking for some bad people. After messing with him for a while, I, I guess they, they left him to have his fun laughing about it. After telling that story, Bill's son piped in with the fact that (sighs) Louis was involved in a rather famous episode that took place involving movie-making in the Hawaiian Islands. They filmed scenes from 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 here to eternity on Kauai, and uh, Frank Sinatra was was in that. that. That movie revived his career. He came back some years later in 1964 to film a movie titled None But the Brave, As the story goes, he was walking along the beach near the Wailua River, near the Coco Palms Hotel, later the site of Elvis's Blue Hawaii, when a rogue wave apparently grabbed Sinatra, and a Mrs. Harold Koch, who was the, I guess, the wife of the executive producer of this movie, and a couple of other people, got pulled out to sea, got caught into a rip current, and uh, were pulled out. Movie actor Brad Dexter, who is one of the Magnificent Seven dove in the surf to try and keep Sinatra's head above water, noted that he wasn't doing very well, and a couple of the other tourists who escaped from the waves came back shouting that someone was lost at sea. Evidently Smokey Gonsalves, you know, former lifeguard, and uh, the assistant manager of the hotel dove in the waves to try and rescue Sinatra. They got out to him and said, you know, old blue eyes was at that point uh, old blue lips. The two men apparently grabbed him and pulled him a couple hundred yards back to shore, Actor Brad Dexter noted that when the, when, the, uh, when the rescuers got to the two of them, they pretty much abandoned him to bring Sinatra in, but he did make it back okay. I was quite stunned to hear this story. I remember I read Kitty Kelly's biography of Frank Sinatra and, and remembered that, yes, he had had a near-drowning episode. I didn't remember where it was or when, but this was apparently it, and a character well-known to my, my family. I, part of my family uh, was one of the ones that rescued him. So I wound up looking up Smokey on Google, and the power of Google is amazing. It, it, it retrieved an article from the, uh, the paper, the garden. It, removed, it, it pulled up an article from the, the Kawaii paper describing uh, uh, his activities. They did note that although he was a county supervisor, he did enjoy cockfights <laughs> and worked in his capacity as supervisor to make them legal and, and, and failed in doing so because he did cut... Quite a figure. Uh, he evidently was picked up by the movie people. He appears in the movie Diamond Head as apparently uh, Charlton Heston's Man Friday. I'm going to have to take a look at this. Now, it should be noted that uh, this dramatic uh, adventure, this dramatic rescue from the surf, took place in front of the Cocoa Palms Hotel, which was the setting of Elvis' 1961 movie Blue Hawaii. Stuff I found on the web noted that Elvis um, did marry his love interest at that scene in in his film. And when he actually married Priscilla Presley six years later, he went back to that exact site and repeated the scene from the movie in real life. And I guess I need to add uh, Blue Hawaii to my list of Hawaiian films to check out, along with Donovan's Reef, which also apparently has some relatives of mine uh, as extras in it. I know that in Blue Hawaii, uh, one of my cousins... Local high school girl got selected to be one of the people that Elvis was, I don't know, making uh, making goo-goo eyes at. Again, got to check it out just for the heck of it. One item of movie trivia was that the song, Blue Hawaii, was discovered, rediscovered by Elvis in time to make that movie, but it originated in a movie from 1937 called Hawaiian Wedding, I believe. (laughs) In that movie, it was noted that Bing Crosby plays a singing press agent for a pineapple cannery, prompting the author of the piece to note, you know, we need more singing press agents. Anyway, Mr. Marlon and I are putting together this, uh, this look back at Hawaiian history for the benefit of family members, not for the audience of Radio Parallax, but I do expect we're going to come up with a few items here and there that are so good, we're just going to have to share, like, like this past one, which I hope you enjoyed. Let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Night and you